I was going to pray again. So go ahead and have a seat. Thank you, uh, Matt, for the introduction uh, a little bit earlier. It is a joy. Um, my wife and I have been here for a number of years, and to see this ministry continue to flourish uh, just brings much joy to our hearts. And it will be sad to leave this place um, whenever that time comes, whenever the Lord appoints. But we are very much excited to go and serve with our missionaries who are already in the Philippines. Uh, we're very, very excited to be a part of that ministry and hopefully under a year from now. Um, and we do covet your prayers as we make those preparations. So um, all joking aside, we do have to raise a lot of money. Um, and we know the Lord will provide that. And some of you will go on to make uh, some good money in your jobs. We do pray uh, that you'll be faithful with that, wherever the Lord would put it on your heart, um, first and foremost, with, with whatever church he puts you in. Uh, it's actually been pretty neat to think about missions, and we'll allude to it a little bit today. Um, but because of our heart for missions, my wife and I have been able to travel around the world and see uh, many different wonders in the world, one of them recently being in India, uh, the Taj Mahal. Um, another one we've actually been able to see uh, is something called the Marina Bay Sands Hotel. And I don't know if you've ever heard of that before. It doesn't sound grand like the Taj Mahal, but if you're on your phone, I'll give you permission to look it up really quickly. It's called the Marina Bay Sands Hotel in Singapore. And it is a site to behold. It's one of the most magnificent buildings ever constructed. Uh, very, very unique. And it opened in 2020, uh, 2010 uh, and it cost about $8 billion to build. And it's very, very, very unique. If you look at the picture, there's three structures, uh, three pillars you could see. And at the top of all three pillars, it looks like a giant cruise ship sitting on the top. Uh, and it is a marvel uh, to behold. And at the top of that even, they put an infinity pool, um, so as if that wasn't grand enough, if you can get to the top, uh, it's as if you're floating over the entire city of Singapore. Uh, 3,500, I think, hotel rooms, um, incredible features, there's tons of activities, the infinity pool elevation at over 650 feet above the ground, it is incredible. And nowhere in the, else in the world will you find an attraction like the Marina Bay Sands Hotel. It's iconic. And the world knows, in a sense, Singapore by this building. It's their identity. It testifies to their engineering expertise to be able to create something like this where they're taking into consideration all the earthquake faults and shifting of the, of the, of the world. It's a mastermind. And for a nation only being 51 years old, it really is iconic. What's the point? Well, the point is that you know Singapore oftentimes because of this hotel. You know the city by the building. You even know the people by this building. It's what makes this city famous. And today in this passage, we see something similar. We see a building being constructed. Why? Because the people want to be known. They want to make a name for themselves. Today we're going to look at the story of the Tower 
of Babel. And it's in Genesis chapter 11. And while you're turning there, just as a recap, uh, this summer series that we've had, we've been able to look at the story of David and Goliath and Jacob and Esau. And while these are stories you may have heard while growing up, we were served with a fresh biblical look at these childhood staples, which were and oftentimes glossed over as a child. And tonight, as we approach this text in Genesis chapter 11, we want to be reminded that there is so much more to these stories than is often communicated on a flannel graph in Sunday school. And while most of you have probably heard of this story before, or even read it yourself, I have a hunch you may not fully understand the breadth of it, the intricacies of it, and the significance of this passage, of these verses. See, it's not, just a, it's not a story about building uh, a tower uh, to try to get up to where God is up in space. It's, it's, not trying to, it's not a story about man trying to achieve just a, a ladder, in a sense, and being able to reach God. And it's not just a story about a building uh, where the people are trying to create a city high enough so that they can avoid the flood again, if God were ever to do that. And as we know, of course, he won't. Instead, rather, it's so much more. It's a story that reveals the heart of man and the character of God. And it connects the previous 10 chapters to the rest of the Bible, the remaining 1,178 chapters. So a little bit of background, Genesis 1, right, we have creation. God created the heavens and the earth and everything else within it. And in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3, we see a detailed description of the creation of man, and then the fall of man in the introduction of sin. Genesis chapter 4, we see the continuation of sin as Cain kills Abel. And in Genesis 5 through 9, again, sin continues to spiral out of control such that the whole earth is wicked and God comes in and wipes them all out with the exception of Noah's family. Noah builds his ark, God saves his people. And in Genesis chapter 10, we have an interesting chapter, it's called the Table of Nations. And from Noah, his three sons, we, we see how the nations of the world developed. Chapter 10, we read several times that languages have already developed. And for example, we see in, in verse 5, from these coastland, cha chapter 10, verse 5, from these, the coastland people spread in their lands with each of his own language. Verse 20, same thing. These are the sons of Ham. Ham is one of Noah's sons. And by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Verse 31, these are the sons of Shem. And by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. God is already, Moses, as the author, has already described here what is going to take place. Nations will be created, people will be scattered, and there will be different languages on the earth. But what's interesting here is in chapter 11, verse 1, we read this. Now the whole earth had one language and the same word. So, many languages, many nations, the whole earth had one language. What's going on here? 
I thought there were already multiple languages in chapter 10. And so as it is in typical Hebrew fashion, narrative fashion, we often read a summary of what's going on, and then we actually backtrack and dig a little bit deeper into a particular story. So the author goes back and provides additional detail. We saw this similarly in Genesis 1, through, in chapter 1 and 2, where the creation of man is briefly described in Genesis 1, and then in chapter 2, we see a, a fuller, detailed account. And so what's going on here? Why, why do we go from one language spoken to, to, to many languages? How, how did we get there? And why is this interjection so important that Moses will spend the time to go back and zoom in on a particular story. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. And so to help guide our study today, uh, let's look at, we're going to look at chapter 11 and look at it through two lenses, two lenses or two parts. We're going to focus on man, uh, what he's doing and his, his heart, his motivation, and then the narrative shifts to God, and we'll see what God does in response in his heart and his motivation just the same. So let's look at Genesis chapter 11, the first several verses, as we look at specifically man and his actions. Let's read together verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had a brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, here in that very first verse, we see. Um, what man is doing, and we already explained it. First of all, we see that man is speaking the same language. They're all speaking the same language. And when we see here the whole earth, it is literally referring to the entire earth. Everyone in the earth spoke the same language. And then it says one speech. One speech. So what's the difference? One language, let's say it's, it's English. But if you were to go to Texas, they might say words a little bit differently. They might use a little bit different vocabulary. An example uh, is something recently as we uh, encountered a Filipino here in the United States. There was a little boy, his name is Blue. And he comes up to me and he says, oh, you know, how are you doing? I says, good. I said, what was your name again? He says, oh, it's Blupo. Blupo. I said, okay, hi, Blupo, how are you doing? And me not knowing how they use their language in the, Philippine, in the Philippines, Po refers to sir. So his name is actually Blue, and he's using Po as a means of, yes, sir, yes, sir, uh, looking up, of saying kindness to me out of respect. And so I didn't, and I was not familiar with how they use that term. So just because we use the same language doesn't mean we might understand each other. But here in Genesis chapter 11, everyone is speaking the same language and they have the exact same vocabulary. They not only spoke the same language, but they understood each other as well. And so what do we learn about man here? Just verse one, everyone on earth speaks the same language in such a way that they can work together, understand each other, 
and in some sense, make progress together, as, but as we'll see, not in a positive way. Verse 2 says, And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. What do we see man doing here in verse 2? They're settled in Shinar, and they're coming from the east. At first look, it may not seem so significant, but Shinar is actually a land not too far from, from the Garden of Eden, actually. And if you carefully follow the narrative of Genesis, you'll see that it's a bit ironic. See, in Genesis 1.28, God tells man at the outset of creation to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth and to subdue it. They're supposed to go. They're supposed to be God's ambassadors, his image bearers. They're supposed to go and represent God to the ends of the earth, to fill the earth, to bring glory to God everywhere. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, God reiterates this to Noah. After he wiped out the entire earth, he reiterates and recharges man and says, Noah, go, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Genesis chapter 10, a key word here, spread. We already referred to it. From the coastland peoples, spread. And the families of the Canaanites, spread in verse 18. The nation spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Verse 32, we see it three times in chapter 10. Why spread? Like I said, and I'll reiterate, because the image of God is born on man. Man has the image of God. God created man in his own image so that he would go and so that his glory would be known. And man in his perfection without sin would have displayed God perfectly in that sense, in the way that God wanted it. The spreading of God's people is part of God's original plan the outworking of his blessing given to his people. And so we see that. Genesis 1.28, you're supposed to go. You're supposed to spread. Genesis 9, after Noah, go and spread. And even chapter 10, spread, 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 multiply, fill the earth. Chapter 11, verse 2, they settled. People settled in Shinar. And they didn't settle very far. They settled very close to where they had started in Eden, where it all began. This should cause the reader to stop and think, what's going on? Something's not good. These people are up to something. And even more so, when we look at what else is here in verse 2, it says that the people migrated from the east they migrated from the east. And throughout, throughout Genesis, this also becomes a theme and a motif where east is, is bad. It's a bad omen. It, it foreshadows evil and sinfulness. In chapter 3, verse 24, in, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. And the angels were set to guard the garden on the east. And they were sent out through the east. In chapter 4, verse 16, Cain goes eastward, 
after killing his brother. And even after this narrative and throughout uh, Genesis, but one example is in, uh, we see this, and in 13 verse 11, when Abraham and Lot separate, Lot goes which direction? East. And very quickly, Lot faces trouble, and Abram has to go and rescue him. And so when you see east, when you're reading Genesis, it's not typically a good sign. And we see it here. And so the reader picks up on this, and the reader, his ears are perked, and we see here they settled in Shinar from the east. It's not a good start. It's not a good start. In verse 3, what else do we see man doing? We see them building a city tower, a city tower. In verse 3, they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Again, reading through the narrative of Genesis, we know in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image. Let us make man. Here we see man imitating God in the exact same way. They said to one another, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They're trying to mimic God. And again, the reader and the, the listener of these stories would have picked up on these things right away. God said that, and that's reserved for God. Man's trying to say that. What's going on? This is God language, not man language. Man is not known for creating. The whole Genesis account is to show God created. And so when man uses this phrase, he's accrediting, accrediting himself to himself a God-like characteristic a characteristic, a trait he doesn't deserve. They're building a, a city tower. Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And, and brick for stone, and they use bitumen for mortar. And some commentators here will say um, that they think Moses is mocking the builders here. I mean, they had stone available for them in that time. And they have had mortar, which is a very strong type of glue, uh, available for them at this time. But they're using, in a sense, primitive type of materials. Another commentator remarks that, that using brick and bitumen was actually, uh, while potentially inferior products, it allowed them and the kings of that time to craft and implement their insignia on each brick. They could put their name so that every single brick in a building would be attributed to that king who initiated that, that building who created it. But regardless of, of mocking or if it was intended for some other reason so that the king could put his name on it, looking at the rest of the situation, we see that the author, Moses, is contrasting these two things for a reason. And regardless of what the actual reason is, is it's not good. The original under, uh, listener would have understood but we can continue to understand that something's going on here. They're using something that is not of the norm. What is going on? So they're still building a city, a city tower. Verse 4, they said, says, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. There is, said it again, 
Come, let us build. Build what? A city tower. And some people will say that city tower was actually not a, a city with a tower in the middle, but it was actually a city within a tower. And so they were able to build one building large enough where the entire city would take place there, where they would have everything that they need in one location. And you would ask yourself the question, uh, why would they build such a thing, right? Why, why, what were the advantages of a city tower? And reveals to us here in verse 4 that they wanted to make a name for themselves. Make a name for themselves. And surely as well it was advantageous for security purposes, um, being all together in one, being in tower to be able to see enemies as they come, uh, to be able to shoot down your enemies as they approach, uh, being sedentary also instead of nomadic had its military advantages like I mentioned, but also um, would also allow them economically to settle down and to create their own crops, to develop trade, machinery, whatever else. Instead of being a nomadic people, people on the move, it would have been much harder to do that. But when you think upon a civilized city and, and an economy today, what, what do you see? You see a group of like-minded people, with similar goals, similar ambitions, different skills, different perspectives, but all working together for a common good, for a good of everyone in that city. And indeed, a city and a tower are gifts from God. Um, it is men subduing the earth. It is using the earth for good. But when the motivation and the end goal of such a monumental achievement is for self-worship and fame, that's when man has taken something meant for good and has turned it into something for evil. Turned it into evil. And that's what we see here when we read, let us make a name for ourselves. So we looked at what, what's happening, what is man doing? They're speaking one language, they're building this tower, they're settling down in one place. All, especially those last two negative things, but what's their motivation behind it all? And we see that here in verse four. The motivation is that they would come and build for themselves. And now it's stated more explicitly that they would make a name for themselves. Um, where? In the, with its peak in the heavens. And so, if I were to illustrate three sins now that we can pull out of this passage, three sins that we can pull out of this passage or negative bad motivations, it's these three things. Come, let us build ourselves and let us make a name for ourselves. What? A city tower with its peak in the heavens, right? With his peak in the heavens. In Deuteronomy 128, we hear of Moses uh, and, the, and the spies as they return, they report to Moses that there are great buildings fortified to the heavens. It's not a good thing. In Deuteronomy 9.1, the cities that Israel is to dispossess and destroy are described as cities great and fortified up to the heaven. In Jeremiah 51, it says, Though Babylon should mount up to heaven, and though she should fortify her strong height, yet destroyers would come from me upon her, says the Lord. Buildings that were tall in those days were seen as evil because many of the buildings that were built tall in those days were meant for either idolatry 
or false sense of worship against God to make a name for themselves and not built for the glory of the Lord. This tower is a sort of architectural symbol then here of man's self-projected greatness with its top in the heavens as an idiom for security, false security, but at the heart of it, it's an attempt to be like God. Man was commissioned to be on earth, but here we see men attempting to put 